0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions, a trivia game show meant to teach us more about Black history. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, Politics Editor for The Griot and Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of the Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how it works. We've got five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to answer. If they answer correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five trivia questions, there will be a black bonus round just for fun. And I like to call it like Lightning. Our guest for this episode is Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She's been serving in the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District since 2019. She's a history maker who was the first Black woman to be elected to Congress from the state of Massachusetts and the first Black woman elected to the Boston City Council, where she served for more than eight years. Representative Presley is a member of The Squad, a group of progressive Congress members who have been called the future of the younger political generation. And in 2020, she revealed her alopecia diagnosis, calling it her superpower. So this brilliant congresswoman is here with us today. Congresswoman Presley, I am so honored to have you here playing the Blackest Questions. Are you ready to play with us today? I do not know. I'm just
2: going to be calling on all the angels for their grace and mercy. And this woman, I'm not
1: trying to be embarrassed. Okay, let's go. Okay, let's do it. I know you got this. Okay, question number one. This HBCU grad is an attorney by trade and made history when she was the first Black woman to receive a major party's nomination for governor. Who is she? Stacey Abrams. That is correct. Stacey Abrams graduated from Spelman College, magna cum laude, and was very involved. I come to you as a young person, as a young woman, as a young Black woman, to ask you to use us. Use the young people of the United States of America. She led protests against the Rodney King verdict when she was still a teenager. And at just 29 years old, she became the deputy city attorney for Atlanta, running a team of more than 20 attorneys. In 2006, Abrams was named the House Minority Leader of the Georgia State House, making her the first black woman to hold that position. And despite losing two governor's races, she's a champion for voting rights and is credited with helping several Democratic candidates win their positions. So Congresswoman Presley, it is the year of our Lord, 2023, and we're still having so many firsts for Black people in electoral politics, especially Black women. What do you think needs to happen to ensure we have more representation in our leadership on the local, state, and even national levels?
2: Well, you know, first we have to run, um, but but secondly, um, and there are a lot of real barriers to our even running. I think people make it just about our ability, once you're declared, can you raise the money? And it doesn't matter what sort of bona fides black women, uh, have how many degrees, what our service, um, what our record of service, um, we still have the hardest time fundraising, but even before you can get there, um, there are so many real life barriers. I remember when I ran for the Boston city council, the first time I i am an only child. My mother's cancer was in remission. I was unmarried, um, And I was, I had a job working for a United States Senator at the time. And I had to really ask myself if I could afford to run because I didn't have a spouse to carry me on their health insurance. Um, I was the medical proxy and the primary caregiver for my mother Uh, in her cancer battle. I had just purchased uh, my first, first home and really, uh, I had cashed out my 401k in order to do that. Uh, And so I took on a lot of debt personally just to run. Um, But also we have to address the real barriers to the ballot because at the end of the day, who you vote for determines who's elected, who's elected determines the policies. The policies determine who lives, who dies, who survives, who thrives. And so it becomes this cyclical circle where Uh, The policies are not serving the diversity and the continuum of needs uh, for really anyone because we don't have that lived experience and that representation around the policy and decision-making tables. Personally, I think that we should lower the voting age in in municipal, state, and federal elections to 16. Uh, You have to build that muscle, uh, make it habitual as early as possible, foster that relationship, between um, uh, individuals and their government. Secondly, um, we have to uh, uh, address the barriers to voting access. And so there should be, I mean, I think election day should be a holiday. I think there should be same day voter registration. Um, as an aside, I also support jail-based voting. So we have to eliminate all those, those barriers and access to the ballot. But we have to
1: run. Absolutely. And, you know, Really quickly, what gave you the courage to run? For our listeners out there, there might be some people who have thought about it, maybe. But, you know, what sparked you to decide, I'm going to really throw my hat in the ring and and do this thing?
2: Well, I'm a cliche um, because I honor uh, all the data that says that it takes um, a minimum of seven people to convince any woman to run for office. And it only takes one to convince a man. And that's usually himself. Uh, and I have seen that time and time again. So I I had um, I was a founding board member of an organization called Emerge Massachusetts. Um, I had uh, served in a number of nonprofit spaces doing the work of diversifying the political pipeline. But I was very content being an aide. I was an aide mm-hmm. for 16 years, uh, 11 to Senator John Kerry, uh, four to former Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy, the second who used to be the congressman for the seat I currently hold. That I started in his office as an intern, unpaid, working three paid jobs, uh, having recently transplanted from Chicago to Boston. Um, so I loved being the person behind the person. And I think a lot of people underestimate the power of being the person behind the person, the impact, the reward, uh, the benefit. You know, it is the aide who was pulling the elbow of the member. It is the aide who's uh, whispering in their ear, who is meeting with those stakeholders and constituencies, who is often on the front lines of what are the, the issues top of mind for people or what's a bill that should be championed. So I loved being the person behind the person. Um, but I, again, uh, very uh, true to form, I was recruited to run. Um, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Avi Green who worked for an organization at the time called Mass Vote. And he just approached me and he said, this is going to be the year the first black woman is elected to the Boston City Council. And I said, that's great. Who is it? And he said, it's you. And I said, most certainly not. Um, So there was a lot of um, cajoling, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer. And ultimately, I said yes, because I saw it as a continuation of the work I've been doing for a lifetime. But moreover, I was running a champion gender specific and responsive programming and policies I felt that the narrative culturally had been so dominated by our black and brown boys as being at and proven risk and girls had been particularly black and brown girls completely overlooked, uh, in mm-hmm. the narrative. Um, and I knew that based upon my work in nonprofit community, my volunteer work, um, that we were failing girls. And I wanted to do something about that. Most thought that was the work of a nonprofit and not government. Um, but, um, enough believed in, in my, uh, Theory of Change, uh, and elected me in 2009 as the first uh, woman of color, first black woman to serve on that council in its 100-year history. Um, But I'd be remiss if I also did not acknowledge that my mother was an extraordinary role model and teacher as a super voter, as a proud Democrat who took me with her to vote in every election, and who taught me early on that um, Mm. this relationship must be one that is cooperative and symbiotic. Uh, With community and the electorate holding government accountable,
1: that's such an important piece, uh, Congresswoman. Because you know my elementary school is a polling station, and my parents let me pull the lever for Jesse Jackson in 1984. And I think that that's part of the reason why I'm a political scientist today. Um, Really briefly, before we get to question number two, tell us a little bit more about. I know you're the founding co-chair of the Equal Rights Amendment Caucus that's been working to finally make gender equality the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. Really briefly, tell us about that fight and what's next for you and your colleagues.
2: Right. Well, the amendment is uh, equal rights uh, under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. And for 100 plus years, uh, there has been a movement to make that so. Eighty percent of countries around the globe have enshrined gender equality in their Constitution. Thirty eight states um, so that's, uh, you know, three-fourths have met uh, the uh, ratification uh, threshold. So the women of this country, we have certainly done our job, um, although we're still not being compensated accordingly for it. We have done our job. We have done the work on the ballot and at the ballot box, um, you know, in community, uh, in our economy. And yet we still don't have our full freedoms. Right. Uh, 1972, right. the ERA did pass and it passed in a bipartisan fashion, in fact, um, but it was set with an arbitrary deadline for ratification. So I've introduced legislation to do away with that arbitrary deadline um, because there should not be a deadline on gender equality. And uh, myself and Representative Cory Congressman Cory Bush out of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, together we have uh, joined forces to launch the first uh, ERA caucus, which supports the momentum and the movement building, uh, that we continue to do, um, we have um, and and we're closer than ever before. Uh, we had a a Senate hearing, the first hearing in 40 years, and we had a Senate vote, uh, and it was the closest that we've come. And so um, we're going to continue to keep this fight up because gender equality uh, can't wait. And perhaps our Absolutely. Supreme Court and others would move a little bit differently if right. we had that set that legal uh, standard uh, of protection.
1: Well, I'm sending, I know you represent Massachusetts, but I know, you know, you Chicago Midwestern girls will get it done. And I'm sending you all the positive energy right there. All right, we are ready for question number two. Are you ready, Congresswoman? Sure. Okay. This writer was the first black person to have a book of poetry published in the United States in 1773. A statue of her can be found on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Who is she? Phyllis Wheatley. That is correct. Phyllis Wheatley was around seven years old when she was kidnapped from West Africa and brought to Boston. Phyllis Wheatley was not her real name, and she was given that name by the family that enslaved her. But the family believed in educating her, which was very foreign at the time, and they quickly realized she was a talented writer. They eventually took her to London to have her book of poems published. The book, entitled Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was sold around the world. But Phyllis Wheatley never saw any riches from her work. She was eventually freed, but lived in poverty and died at the age of 31. So are you familiar with Phyllis Wheatley's work uh, being a, you know, a Bostonian now?
2: Yes. And I actually was at the uh, unveiling of that statue um, uh, in her, in her honor. Um, That was a part of a a larger effort when I served on the Boston City Council to have um, parity when it comes to representation uh, in our monuments, uh, and also in in public art,
1: absolutely. You know, and I spent a little time uh, in the Boston area. You know, I went to Tufts undergrad in Medford, um, so I'm familiar with Comav. Uh, and th- there were no statues like that, obviously, when when I was there um, many many moons ago in college. But are you, you know, in this capacity? I know that you are constantly traveling. You're working, you're serving as a surrogate for the Democratic Party. Do you take time to read a little poetry? And if so, who do you read? Because I'm a Gwendolyn Brooks fan. And shout out to Chicago, um, Poet Laureate of Illinois. Uh, but who, who, if anyone, inspires you uh, while you're traveling and working on behalf of women and, and Black folks across the country?
2: Yeah, I'm a firm believer in the power of artivism. There is no uh, movement. There is no revolution. Um, you cannot do... Radical work without the arts. Um, my um, my father uh, previously was a professor of journalism, uh, and uh, he and my mother, one of the things that forged their love bond uh, was their love of creative writing uh, and of poetry. And so uh, even when my father, uh, for a period of his life, was incarcerated, uh, he never stopped informing my black consciousness and sending me uh, the poetry of Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni, Uh, just as an example. And so I'm very old school in that way. So um, poetry is what I read the most.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And when I need uh, direction or anchoring um, or language, uh, probably Nikki Giovanni is who I read the most. Nikki Giovanni, Audre Lorde, uh, Maya Angelou. And in honor of the 50th anniversary of of, uh, hip hop, I do want to also throw Tupac in there um, because I do believe that uh, he, he was a poet.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think so many of our hip-hop artists are real poets when you listen to how they put together language. You know, I, I'd like to think that Langston Hughes would sit back and be very proud of some of the, the ways in which these young rappers put together language. I just think it's a really unique way for us to think about literature and bridge this 20th and 21st century gap. Uh, especially for young black people. Yes, I agree. Okay, well, let's go on to question number three. You're doing incredible well, Congresswoman. Are you ready? The pressure's on, okay. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Question number three. Denzel Washington starred in a film telling the true story of Melvin B. Tolson, a professor at one of the country's first HBCUs in Wiley College, Texas. What is the name of this film? The Great Debaters. That is correct.
2: Gentlemen and lady, debate is combat, but your weapons are words.
1: So The Great Debaters tells the story of a college debate team from Marshall, Texas. In 1935, they've made history by participating in the first interracial collegiate debate in the South. In the film, the debate team defeats Harvard students to become national champions. But in reality, the team defeated students from the University of Southern California. However, the team was not allowed to officially call themselves champions because Black students could not be members of the debate society. That didn't change until after World War II. So I've heard that you were once a competitive debater. And seeing how you talk to some of your colleagues, I am thoroughly convinced that you were a competitive and champion debater. So tell us a little bit more about that and how you think it's prepared you for the work you do now in Washington.
2: Well, I have to take that back to my mother. So it was a program called Junior Statesmen of America. uh, And... um... Mm. Uh, my mother had applied uh, because she felt I had some natural leadership skills, and um, and so I sent in an application, and I was rejected. And my mother uh, would not let up. She was someone who, may she rest in peace and power, did not want me to be denied uh, any any opportunity, and so she fought fiercely and assured them that one day she they were going to want to say I was an alum of the program. Um, that should tell you a lot about my mother, uh, you know. So um, in any event, ultimately, I was accepted into the program and and really thrived in it and, uh, you know, went on to become a, a Midwest uh, champion or, or, or representative in that regard. Uh, how has it prepared me? I mean, certainly in making an argument uh, and trying to make a persuasive argument. Um, but I think uh, one of the, the unique things about women Uh, particularly in public office, is that we draw from the confluence of our lived and professional experiences. I also, uh, I worked in banquets and wait staff for six years. Um, I, uh, in addition to being a competitive debater, I also uh, was a cheerleader. And I can assure you, I I draw on all all three of those experiences and many more that I'm not enumerating here that uh, inform how I approach my work, Um, And even some of the issues that I've that I've championed, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about fighting for workforces or communities that people often see as invisible is certainly shaped by my experience representing multiple marginalized identities as a black woman. um, But is also my experience working in the service industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a quick story on that. Uh, I remember working this black bankers convention and I just dropped the bed, placed the bread basket on the table. And as I stepped away. Um, one of the, the, uh, table guests said, it's a shame, you know, people died so that she would aspire, uh, to be more. And I heard that. And because I'm, I'm my mother's child, I went oh. back and I, oh, you know, I beg your pardon. Um, you know, people died so that I would have a choice and, and I'm here, um, because I choose to be. And by the way, I work for Congressman, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, the second, um, so, um, I know what it is to uh, be a part of a workforce uh, where people look over you and through you and make assumptions about um, your character and your aspirations.
1: I want to thank you so much for, for saying that, because for so many of our listeners out there, you know, and as we have these conversations about dignity and work, I think it's really important to also, you know, when I tell my students I used to work at a shoe store, that I was a smiling people greeter, at TGI Fridays, you know, or that I've been rejected from things. And I think That's where I I really wanted to pick up. You know, I think a lot of folks see you as a congressman. It's like, wow, everything's been a crystal stair. And, it's you know, I think uh, failure and rejection um, and triumph is such a larger part of the narrative. I I keep thinking about Giannis from the Milwaukee Bucks talking about failure with uh, the basketball season and what that really means. And I think it's really important uh, for people to tell the holistic side of the story. And I really appreciate you sharing that.
2: You know, it's all of those things that... um... I carried shame about and actually things that people told me were liabilities in running for office that have really made me a more effective legislator, including being a survivor of sexual violence, including bearing witness to my mother's uh, victimization by DV, um, and all the things that she went through, battling uh, fibroids, being forced to have a radical hysterectomy, training and uh, training men, mostly white men, that were promoted over her, never being paid according to her worth. I mean, it's all of those things that I that I draw from, and it directly shape the policies that I that I write, um,
1: and also how I do this work. So, oh, thank you so much for sharing that, and thank you so much for your public service to all of us, uh, not just the the citizens and the residents of the state of Massachusetts. We're going to take a quick commercial break. You're listening to the Blackest Question.
0: The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy.
1: I'm a black man, and I can never be a veteran.
0: Being Black the 80s is a podcast docu-series hosted by me, Toré, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like those no soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug and You had to suppress that. <laughs>
1: Uh, You are inspiring me to want to pack up and move back to Massachusetts. Um, So are you ready for question number four? I think so. You're doing incredibly well, I might add. Um, Okay. Question number four. After speaking out against the Vietnam War, this civil rights activist was monitored by the FBI for several years. When she died in 2006, four U.S. presidents attended her funeral. Who was she? Coretta Scott King. You are correct. Greta yeah. Scott King, the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the pair who met in Boston, actually, and had four children together. Though her husband was the face of the civil rights movement, credit Scott King was very much part of the cause. In fact, just days after MLK's funeral, she was out marching in a labor strike. credit Scott King was also the driving force behind the federal holiday that honors her husband's birthday, an honor only given to two other Americans, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And so... Did you know that Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King met and fell in love in Boston when she was attending the New England Conservatory of Music? Of course. I know their whole love story. But I but I've been a long been
2: an admirer of Coretta Scott King and been very intentional about quoting her and lifting her up because uh as is so often the case, black women are rendered as a footnote or uh, completely erased. And she was her own woman and she was already uh a civil rights fighter a progressive mm-hmm. she was the one who convinced dr king to take that position against the vietnam war she also championed a federal job guarantee uh and as you just uh, alluded to there was a um a huge uh champion um and an ally in the fight for workers rights um so she was something extraordinary and even as a student at the new england conservatory Uh, The songs that she sang were the songs that fuel the movement, you know, freedom Mm -hmm. songs. So it's no wonder that uh, she caught the attention of Dr. King, although she admitted that she was not immediately impressed by him. She had heard all this talk of him and then he was much shorter in stature than she had anticipated um, and had a a different demeanor. But uh, Mm -hmm. but ultimately, you know, clearly they were um, enamored with one another. And, and the rest is history. And I think uh, Martin and Coretta proved the power of Black love and of Black radical love to birth movements. So before there was uh, Montgomery, before there was uh, Chicago, before there was Atlanta, uh, there was Boston. Let's
1: take a break. Stay with us. And we're back. In the early 90s, in the early 1990s, this Chicago native rapper was crowned the fastest English-speaking rapper in the world by the Guinness Book of World Records. Who is he? Twista. This is Carl Terrell Mitchell, a.k.a. Twista. So he was then known as Mr. Tongue Twista, and he earned the title by rapping 598 syllables in 55 seconds. I want our listeners just to sort of meditate on that. 598 syllables in 55 seconds. And more than 30 years later, he still holds the Guinness title. Twista grew up in K-Town, an area of West Chicago, and began rapping at the age of 12. He's best known for his number one hit, Slow Jams, featuring Jamie Foxx and Kanye West. What was it like growing up in a city that produced so much musical talent? You know, we all oftentimes think about Detroit or, you know, New York, but Chicago has some some greats that have come through that area
2: that's true but i have to acknowledge it's like any city that you grow up in you appreciate in hindsight those things Mm -hmm. um I, Mm -hmm. i was raised in chicago until the age of 18 and then i left to uh relocate to boston to attend boston university um and so i've only had the the opportunity to go back as an adult four times uh in you know 30 years or whatever and um and, uh, or 20 plus years, and um, now I have that appreciation. Uh, but honestly, because I was very close with my grandfather who pastored a storefront church on the south side of Chicago, most of my musical, uh, my music influences and live performances that I experienced were jazz. Jazz blues, there is a thriving um, blues, scene and history in chicago so blues and jazz was most of what i experienced and listened to uh when i was there i was also there at the heyday of the bulls uh which coincided with another job i didn't mention which is i worked at Foot Locker. oh uh, yes and, and I, I draw from that retail experience every single day um but um but yeah no chicago is an extraordinary city and in many ways very similar to boston so i think it primed me i mean uh, it's a city of working class neighborhoods. Uh, the downtown is is a metropolitan. Um, many people, um, you know, our mayors are, are usually in office for a very long time, um, you know, and uh, yeah, they're both great, great cities. So Boston changed my the trajectory of my life, really, right. where I sort of crystallized my purpose. And so I'm eternally grateful and it's an honor uh, now to serve as a congresswoman, that certainly is not anything that I uh, forecasted for my life.
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, as I'm reminiscing and thinking about, you know, I was in high school during the era of the, the Bulls and, you know, working at Airstep Buster Brown at Gurney Mills Outlet Mall okay. way up near Wisconsin. <laughs> and I, I, I got a shout out a friend of the podcast, Blackest Questions, uh, Diala Riddle, who's the one of the co-creators and uh, actors and directors in Southside. Uh, this great show uh, that had three seasons on HBO um, that really highlighted just the beauty of Black people uh, in the, on the South Side of Chicago, and so it makes me think about that. They had lots of you know politics and, and jobs, and
2: yeah. that is a great show. And, I, and my husband and I are faithful watchers of The Shy. Um, oh, indeed. I was recently recently in Chicago to campaign for Brandon Johnson. Shout out uh, to Shout the, out to
1: Brandon Johnson. We got to have him on the podcast.
2: Yes. And it was such a full circle moment because the very first campaign I ever worked on um, was Harold Washington to elect the first black mayor. And I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. Um, so, you know, when people think this is a, uh, you know, magic, um, you know, it's been this <laughs> work. I've been on my grind, you know, for for a while. And a believer in the power of, of movements, and I thank my mother for teaching me early on that that was the most transformative way with which to effectuate change is through, is through movements. But on the shy, I actually uh, get into debates with people all the time about how um, authentic it is. I think it is very authentic. So. Yes. Yeah. One, shy,
1: and you know, I, I, I don't know the shy as well as I know Southside. I think what I loved about Southside was that. Even though it's very Chicago specific, there are so many parts where it could be any city where you have Black people thriving and working and and just, you know, living life and having having fun, even if they're not, you know, uh, sort of economically stable. You know, it's like Blackness is not doom and gloom and misery. I mean, That's we right. make a way out of no way and we definitely find joy uh, no matter where we are and what I we're doing. I
2: agree with that. And I have to just say, I've really been enjoying this last decade of... Black storytelling because um, it is not one dimensional, and so I, I you know, I, I love seeing that diverse representation of our lived experience and and how we're showing up from creatives and skateboarders to yes. engineers and architects to faith leaders. I mean, that's the the true story of our of our lives, and so it's been um, wonderful to see uh, more accurate telling of the diversity
1: of who we are. Absolutely. Okay. So, before I let you out of here, I can't believe I'm spending time with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. (laughs) I appreciate you so much. We're going to get to the black lightning round. So, this is where there's no right or wrong answer. Um, And before I let you out of here, we'll talk about some of the the policy things you're working on. But this is black lightning, where whatever comes to mind, you just say the answer. Okay, you ready? Mm, Okay. Okay. Boston cream pie or cannoli? Neither. Lactose intolerant. Favorite holiday and why? Mm. Uh, Juneteenth and Thanksgiving are probably tied. Okay. Yeah. Sunset or sunrise? Sunrise. Okay. You have one hour of uninterrupted conversation. Are you sitting down with Michelle Obama or Barack Obama? Oh, Michelle. Yeah. What movie can you watch over and over? Love Jones. Mmm, yes. Are you walking along the Charles or are you going to go to Walden Pond? The Charles, yeah. This new, this might be controversial, the Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King embrace sculpture. Love it or hate it? Love it. It was there, spoke of the unveiling. Okay, I saw you looking great with your popping red lip. Um, okay, so here we go. You are known to always look fabulous with these popping lip colors. What's your favorite lipstick brand?
2: Hmm. Look at me T- today with a nude lip. Um, I know. Actually, I'm big on drugstore makeup, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do. I love, I love a Fenty, if you're going to go there. But um, but um, I like a couple of black-owned cosmetics um, as well, outside of Fenty. Mented. Um, okay. Mented is incredible. Lip bar. Uh, okay. And then for just regular OCVS, NYX is a good
1: brand. Yes. Because yeah. you know why? Because it's basically wet and wild 508. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yes. Okay, but you're gonna ask me the color. I can't tell you that because I I'm, I'm, okay. I blend my colors a lot. So okay. Well, see, I tried to I tried to do a bold lip today okay. just because I knew
1: you were coming on. It's
2: so funny that you say that. I had glasses on. I took them off, and uh, and
1: I don't know why. I did I did a more muted muted lip today. So I do love the lip though. Okay. Last question. Your husband is my birthday twin. We figured that out one night. Oh. Your favorite date night activity? Are you gonna go out or stay in? Ooh. We're going to go out. Yeah. Okay. You're going to go out. You tell my birthday twin I asked about him. Okay. So before I let you out of here, Congresswoman, tell us some things that you're working on. Tell us some things that we should be uh, looking out for and paying attention to and any ways that we can help support you and your agenda.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm still in the fight to end qualified immunity and I've just reintroduced my legislation with Senator Markey uh, to do away with this unjust doctrine um, that de- denies accountability for families who've been robbed of their loved ones um, as a result of um, brutality and murder at the hands of law enforcement. Uh, we have got to do away with this unjust doctrine, which was created by the courts, which has been codified in court after court. Uh, and it um, look, there can never be justice for those families. Justice would mean that their loved ones would still be here. Um, but there must be accountability. Otherwise, what's the deterrent? What are the consequences? People will continue to act or act will continue to operate with callous disregard of of black body of black bodies.
1: Wow, I want to thank you so much for all that you do. For our listeners out there, thank you all for listening to the Black Expressions. I've been speaking to Congresswoman iana Presley. Brilliant black woman, my shoe store worker twin. Um, I just want to thank you for all that you do. Um I, I I really just I I so appreciate you taking the time to to let us know what you've been up to to spend time on the Grio. And for those of you who are listening out there to the Black Expressions, this show is produced by Sasha Armstrong and Jeffrey Trudeau, and Regina Griffin is our director of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more at the Grio Black Podcast Network on the Grio app the website and YouTube.
0: I'm Torre. Join us for crazy true stories about stars who I really hung out with, like Snoop, Jay-Z, Prince, Kanye, and the time I got kidnapped by Suge Knight. Don't miss my animated series, Star Stories with Torre, from the Griot Black Podcast Network.